Welcome to The Observatory. I'm Jessica Halfan. And I'm Michael Beirut. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. This episode of The Observatory is sponsored by Designers and Books, presenter of the Designers and Books Fair. It is the only book fair in the world devoted to the many kinds of design and the books that cover those many kinds of design. The Designers and Books Fair will be held October 2nd, 3rd, and 4th at the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York. For more information, go to designbookfair.com. On each episode of The Observatory, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air. So, Michael, last time we talked, we talked about New Zealand's flag competition. And since then, they have narrowed the selection down to four options, three with the ferns and a black and white koru. How do you feel about the shortlist? If I can divulge, I'm rooting for one of them. I really like that black and white koru flag. I Uh, do, too. I think I do too. It is so elegant and so simple and really distinctive. And I did find myself wondering, uh, you know, flags, of course, typically do their thing at an epic scale. But when those things have to get small, I would imagine those ferns are not as scalable as that koru will be. Do you agree? Yeah, and the koru is just so unusual. It's and it's um, you know, it it's so ubiquitous in New Zealand and Maori culture in just New Zealand culture. Period. It's something they truly own unto themselves. It's you know, it's derived again from the vegetable world, from uh, the characteristic uh, uh, flora of New Zealand, but it's just as unusual. And what I like about it, if I can sort of get all, you know, kind of uh, Academy Awards handicapping about this, my theory is that the three fern versions, which are all fairly similar, um, they, you know, uh, bringing in different colors and different ways of treating the Southern Cross constellation. Uh, I think that the, the three ferns will divide the vote, will divide the fern camp vote, and the Koru camp will then have a clear shot to victory. Well, I agree with you. I think I think that Koru is really, really stunning. Uh, it's bold. It's big. It's the one that has the most interesting scale. Uh, it also is, uh, the fact that it's black and white and it has no color, do you think that will work against it? Um, you're asking the wrong person. I just adore black and white. Uh, I think more things You do. Black and you white. are yeah. a black and white sort of person. So uh, To a fault, to a fault, yeah. So in that case, maybe you'll agree with me about uh, the Google logo redesign, which um, I'm actually a big fan of, more than I thought I would be. But uh, the color palette really has me feeling a sense of dismay. And I wonder how you feel about that. Since we <laughs> talked about the rainbow last time, there is a well, kind of rainbow quality to the color palette in the Google logo. Well, I guess I guess I'm... You know, people who uh, really like black and white, when they start to proceed in the world of color, they do it very cautiously, and they start with the colors that are in the least expensive basic starter Crayola box. So, um, you know, colors like red, blue, yellow, green, I like colors like that, um, I'm, I'm ashamed to admit. And uh, and I also think in the case of the Google logo, um, because uh, those colors were so strongly associated with their previous logo, which I think like most designers I thought was uh, uh, something that we just tolerated in a quaint, quirky sort of way. And I think it was really, for, to my mind, it was just delightful when they updated it. I think they did exactly the right thing. Um, and I... I wasn't, I'm not looking for more subtlety in those colors. I think the brazen primaries that we already associate with Google, um, you know, are a bit of They're not so brazen primaries. That, the thing is, they've never really? been that interesting. That is not a green that's interesting to me. And the yellow, of course, is darkened so you can read it on a white screen. What's great about the Google redesign, in my, in my uh, estimation, is that it actually accomplishes a lot of things. And, and I think they were not alone. Many designers today are rethinking identity programs 
uh, in terms of animation, in terms of their kinetic uh, life online and on mobile and large and small, but also in time and space. And I think that they did this by by capturing the microphone and the, the dots that kind of undulate and move. It's a much more sort of responsive uh, series of things going on there. And, and it's as befits Google's kind of taking over the world in, in lots of ways other than search. Well, designers my age will rem- well remember a time where basically no one knew, no one understood what we did. And uh, no one pretended to understand what we did. And most people, when we found out what we did, were sort of um, kind of nonplussed and slightly bored and would act politely interested and then change the conversation as quickly as possible. And I remember thinking, boy, what a world it would be if people talked about new logos the same way they would talk about new movies or new TV shows. And your wish came true. My wish came true, and I'm not sure what I think about it. Um, I'm not sure either. And what's (laughs) what's curious to me is that... um, I mean, we were talking about New Zealand a moment ago, and and uh, many of the entries were from, let us say, civilians, non non trained designers. People feel strongly about the representation of their country and their culture, and uh, so when you look online, when you look at any distributed presence of these many logos, you would see things that look like they were done by children or by by let's say naive uh, uh, artists. Same with Google, right? So so there's this kind of Google Doodle in a sense. It, is a way of, of celebrating that, you know, the complexity that is the sameness of that logo. So you start to recognize an O as an O and a G as a G. Um, but I think that there's a line between the creative impulse to expand and proliferate around uh, logo variations, and then there's this childlike thing. And one of the things that I found quite curious about Google's redesign this week is the animation that has the sort of Shell Silverstein uh, like hand wiping off the board and creating the new logo. Um, what do you? Th- I mean, do you think that that was an intentional way to just kind of create this language of simplicity that would make everybody feel welcome? Is it, it, it many people and many reviewers in looking at this logo have called it more friendly uh, by losing its serifs? It becomes more geometric, and geometry, I guess, is friendly in the sense that it's international. The core of the international style is based on that kind of geometry. But but there's a line for me between geometry and childlike, and I wonder if Google's pushing one at the expense of the other. Um, yeah, I think that it is childlike, but I think, um, you know, they would argue, and I might agree, that it's, um, um, uh, you know, it's childlike in the sense of childlike wonder and childlike, you know, uh, sense of possibility and, and creativity. Now, some people could say this is, you know, it's childlike uh, as a veil or a, or a mask over a extremely powerful corporation that control that you know has a near monopoly on something that we all do with computers all the time it and does. Uh, and you know um don't be evil as their mantra aside i think that uh um you know no one disputes the fact that google is an extremely powerful company so you could say it's sort of disingenuous when they come in um it being quirky is. and charming i think you that's know? a really good word for it and and of course uh, it also relates it to its holding company called alphabet and it and yeah, gets yeah. at this kind of playful you know really almost pr- primer style uh, logo, 
But uh, the color, you know, it used to be it, when I was uh, studying design and, and a young designer, the, the, the kind of principles upon which one developed an identity program, I was always taught that something had to work in black and white, had to work in a newspaper, had to work, you know, big and small. And of course, now logos have to do much more than that. They have to move and they have to be on screen. So that the idea that color is at the core of something is itself, uh, I think, quite a modern concept. I mean, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, you couldn't do that. Everybody's monitors look different. And now I think there's mm. a lot more streamlined activity where we just assume things will be in color. Um, but I think in this case, because they had an opportunity to do something that was so drastic in its in its um, restaging of so many things, and obviously in conjunction with uh, and under the sort of aegis of alphabet, I, I totally get that it's sans serif. It's those colors that seem that really bring it down to some some level that I think um, is disingenuous. I think that's a very good word for it. Oh, yeah, but, I, you know, I, I think one might call it that, but I'll, you know, I think it's very hard to, um, uh, I mean, like, what's the alternative to, to use? Black and the, white. They would be beautiful in black and white. And, in fact, the animation of those undulating dots and the microphone, why can't that all work in black and white? It would oh, still be so great. You know, I, you know, Jessica, I love, love, love black and white. But I, I think, know you do. But, I think but you, like, you're going to argue for the Crayola box again. I no, love I'm it. not going to. I will not use the word Crayola box, but I think it's sort of perverse to say that, um, you know, th- indeed there was a time where you and I would design a logo and someone would say, well, you know, how does it fax or how does it Xerox on a, on a black and white, you know, Xerox machine? And in fact, notoriously, uh, uh, Paul Rand's first, uh, um, the first solution he did for Enron had a kind of uh, dark yellow in it that failed to reproduce when it was faxed and the whole thing had to be redone just in blue, red, and green, I believe. Uh, so the rumor has it. And But those days are gone. Google exists only, you know, primarily and almost entirely as a on-screen, in-your-computer, in-your-device sort of world. And the, the idea of it kind of having much of a presence at all in the uh, corporeal world, in the, in the non-digital world, is sort of not... You you know, it's, it's, Except no, if you go out to Google and you see all these people riding those yellow, green, blue, and, <laughs> and red bikes, it's very funny. It's, it's yeah. really, it's very silly. Yeah, it, uh, I, I, well, maybe, I mean, it's, um, I, there's something about, you know, just as um, circles are fundamental shapes, I think, um, whether it's simple mind or not, designers think of those primary colors indeed as being I th- primary. And I think right? on that subject, they've done a really beautiful job. I think, yeah. you know, it's it's very geometric. It's very recognizable. It's clean. It's legible. It's friendly. It's accessible. And the smartest thing they did is those animations. I think it really yeah. makes a very yeah. compelling really case. Beautifully done and well explained. And it's hard to explain design uh, you know, and, and roll out a, a, an identity in a way that everybody will understand and embrace. And and just like in in, in magazine design, often a, a magazine will be redesigned and people will hate it. And it's not until the second, third, or fourth issue comes along that people learn to live with it. It's a very difficult thing yeah. to do. And if you do it too drastically, people reject it and you don't want to have that happen. Although I would think that Google now has such a ubiquitous presence in everyone's life. It would be hard for people to reject it and say, that's it. I'm done with this search engine. I don't like the way they use blue it's hard to imagine that that would happen <laughs> well i can see you I doing it of course but uh, uh well, no i'm 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 loyal to google yeah but there is there we are in this world though where people have these strong um reactions to logos and uh uh indeed um 
you know, this very week, the same week that Google launched its logo, I had a hand in um, uh, the design of a logo for another major American corporation. You did, and we're outing you. Verizon. Yes, it's a very elegant redesign, and it's black and white and red. We're going to come back in a moment, but first a word from our sponsor. The Designers and Books Fair is the only book fair in the world devoted to many kinds of design. Presented by Designers and Books and the Fashion Institute of Technology, the Designers and Books Fair will be held October 2nd, 3rd, and 4th at FIT in New York City. And if you're there and you buy Michael's new book, How To, you get a chance to win a lunch with Michael and a tour of Pentagram. I'm looking forward to that lunch. And um, I am the fair, uh, uh, this is its second um, outing, and it really is a, uh, um, a great, really fun event. If you like design and you like books and you like designers and you like reading about design in books this is like will be the world capital of that for uh uh for um those three days and so i highly recommend it for more information about the designers and books fair go to designbookfair.com so uh, on our last episode we talked about this um uh the time magazine cover that we loathed or at least i loathed michael michael you tend to like more things than i do as we've established <laughs> i think in many episodes now Uh, The current issue, the September issue of the Harvard Business Review, is called The Evolution of Design Thinking. Uh, And the cover, uh, we'll put a link to this on our website, shows a a sort of decapitated head. The type (laughs) is where the head should be, and what's below the type is a black turtleneck, much in the style of the kind that the late Steve Jobs would have worn. Michael, what did you think of this cover? Well, first of all, you know, like so many people, I always am so excited when the September Harvard Business Review comes out because that's the that's the big fat issue where all the you know all the trends and what to what to invest in and what to spend your money in and how to make your money and how to um, you know capitalize your whatever people with MBAs do you know so I bought this issue which is not inexpensive I'm not a subscriber so I just paid newsstand price for it and I when I opened it up I encountered this introduction to that article by Brown and uh, Martin and it begins throughout most of history design was a process that applied to physical objects Raymond Lowy designed trains Frank Lloyd Wright designed houses Charles Eames designed furniture Coco Chanel designed haute couture Paul Rand designed logos. David Kelly designed products, including most famously the mouse for the Apple computer. And I thought, wow, these I like these things, and I would like to read like a actual analysis about how things like these came to be designed and how more things that we admire as much as, you know, the 20th Century Limited and Falling Water and a Coco Chanel little black dress and the logo for IBM and the Apple mouse, you know, how we could see more of those things. But you're not the audience and the, and the Harvard I, Business, yeah, Harvard and business as, you, as you yourself have said. And, and really, when this came out this, this month, I was surprised because I thought this was old news already. I think it is old news, but it's a message that seems to have... Um, an infinite capacity to intrigue people, particularly because underlying it all, I think, is this um, constant kind of quest, which is perhaps quixotic or just doomed to failure or something, to convince number people to be more comfortable with ambiguity and to somehow be patient with kind of an iterative process that could have right. mistakes. And frankly, or, and frankly, who doesn't want to think of themselves as creative? 
Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's a very easy. It, it's an easy sell. At its at its most basic, and I think Roger Martin actually, if you press him, will sort of say this. It's really just trying to get people to um, acknowledge the fact that. Um, you know, not everything can be reduced to a spreadsheet. Not every decision can be made by tallying up two columns and picking, you know, um, one of the two numbers that results. You know, that somehow people have to exercise taste and judgment and other things. And, uh, and you know, the only question is that miraculous thing about taste, judgment, intuition seems to be so elusive and just uh, seems to defy everyone's attempts to kind of turn it into a sidebar in a business school magazine or a, you know, 10-page deck that could be shown at a conference, here's how you do it, you know, there's, 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 a, there's, and what big consultancies, big management consultancies, what they, you know, what they live for and what they can sell so, um, uh, so effectively, our methodologies that are like, look, you take all your markets, divide them into four different quadrants, label them like this, and this will tell you how to focus your energy. You know, and it's like, wow, it's a revelation. I'm by the argument that being uncomfortable with ambiguity is is something that maybe design thinking can leverage and and create opportunities for growth and change that are good for people in industry. But the idea that as design thinkers they become designers or they uh, can replace designers or they can uh, undermine or obscure the value that designers bring to something by just rephrasing and creating this new terminology is I think where it gets dangerous. And, and you know, but at the, by the same token, you and I did some work. Um, we, we were uh, fortunate this spring to meet um, the former Secretary of the Treasury, Timothy Geithner, who was up here at Yale, and um, we met him. And I did some work for him this summer. And he's a huge design enthusiast. And here's a guy who believes firmly that if more Americans understood the complexities of finance, there would be less likelihood that we'd have another financial crisis like we had in 2008. And he's not looking to go embrace design thinking and, you know, tell a designer or start arguing about the weights of lines and charts. He's really interested conceptually in how visual thinking, not design thinking, but how visual thinking and making something can produce clarity that leads to a different kind of conversation and gets away from, you know, the hysteria that led to the housing crisis in the United States in 2008. I think that's really exciting. I think it's really marvelous that somebody who's the former Secretary of the Fed and Secretary of the Treasury believes that design has a role to play in the dissemination of financial information. And that's no design thinking. That's just there's, an, there's, an, there's a value added to design in the context of understanding something complicated. Well, I think what you're describing, again, is sort of the difference between um, the process of design and the product of design, in a way. And, um, you but know, design the, thinking is process. This that's, process, That's yeah. where it gets complicated. Yeah, and I think, and I think there's, a, there's sort of, you know, this process, I think, has become, rightly or wrongly, imbued with the kind of glamour in the business world. And it's sort of seen Absolutely. as, you know, I people you piling completely. into conference rooms and having enthusiastic sessions with, like, Post-it notes and whiteboards. Oh, if boards. one more person illustrates yeah. the future of the world in design by Post-it notes, yeah. I am going to personally self-immolate. Yeah, and say what you will, but, you know, um, you know, um, that the, the old 
world of design, um, which is disavowed, you know, as a way to set up the argument for design thinking that led to things like, you know, amazing works of architecture and products we use every day. You know, the, the proof of those things, the proof of the quality of those things were the actual enduring value of the artifacts they created. And I think by the same token, what um, Secretary Geithner finds so interesting about design is that it has the capacity to actually achieve a result. That it's not, it's not merely about some sort of process by which a bunch of people can kind of reach uh, a consensus about some point of view and kind of figure out what customers want, et cetera, et cetera. It's not, that, that, that sort of is only meaningful um, if it leads to an end. And in his case, the end is, is there some way, some kind of, is there some sort of visual storytelling we can use to help regular people understand what's going on in the economy? Um, now, to get to there, you have to have a process, but that process is only meaningful if it actually achieves a very specific end that he you know and that and and that end that he's describing there is has a kind of i think bracing interesting specificity that designers in fact respond to i agree you know so it's um the, the world of the um uh um, you know, people on razor scooters and, you know, with mo- different color, primary color markers, Jessica, imagine, you know, kind of all kind of <laughs> cheerfully collaborating and kind of reaching some sort of group thing consensus about what sort of things should happen next. And particularly often it has to do with product process, you know, so, you know, it's a process to sort of like design another process, you know, instead, um, sooner or later, something becomes manifest in this world that we actually physically live in that has, uh, you know, movable objects and gravity and all these other physical things that still kind of define our realm. And, uh, you know, it's what comes into that world that really counts. And I think... But I think this the the value of design thinking for people that read the Harvard Business Review is much more, as you rightly point out, at the the level of understanding, um, you know, the, the, the industry... Uh, the industries in which they work and the hierarchies that previously held them together. So this mm. is a much more fungible kind of, you know, calling polymath way of going about understanding business. And in that sense, I think it's quite exciting. I just, I just, you know, worry what it means to designers who hide behind the language. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, when I think about people who really are able to um, empathize with their fellow human beings and have incredibly deep insights um, into um, the way real people live in the real world. And to understand that world is the essence of, I think, what designers really uh, are faced with. That's our challenge. And I think we lost a patron saint uh, with the death expected, but in many ways still shocking, of Oliver Sacks. Um, I think what he, I don't think he would call himself a designer. I don't think people think of him as a designer, but I think he really has lessons for designers. I think also that um, I remember very early on as a young designer uh, reading a book he wrote in 1989 called Seeing Voices. Mm. Uh, And he wrote in in this book, I mean, he spent a great deal of time with a young girl, uh, I think she was about four, who was deaf, and he watched her, sort of the evolution of her visual thinking and and what he called kind of almost like a visual, a spatial grammar as she learned to sign because, of course, sign language is not necessarily letters spelling words, it's words, it's phrases, it's idioms, it's – and so there was a complexity to the way she expressed herself. 
And and he described the cognitive understanding of that spatial grammar, uh, what it is to to understand a language that exists without sound, which was of course very visual. And and I think what you're talking about is true. He was he's remembered for so many things: his empathy, his understanding of his patients, probing their stories, an unbelievable amount of of, of patience himself. Uh, the movie that was made about his uh, his work, um, uh, Awakenings, Awakenings. Right. The the books was the book. There, he wrote a book originally in 1973. Uh, it was called Awakenings. It was about a series of patients he'd had who had a, a kind of decades of of a sickness that was kind of a sleeping sickness. Uh, it was the inspiration for a 1990 film uh, later with uh, Robin Williams, who played Dr. Sachs. And, and Robert De Niro. Very good. And Robert De Niro, famously, who played his patient. Uh, and about the, the sort of great moment in the film when he gives them a drug called L-Dopa, and, and they start to come back to the, the life of the living. And the descriptions of his patients and of their problems and of the things that interested him in them. And then I think over time, he, he developed, he had some, uh, initially the cancer that took him from us uh, manifested in his eye. And so his sight was impaired. And I think in the last few years, he wrote specifically about visual loss. Mm. Uh, and then so it connected to all of that empathy and writing about real people having real problems. He wrote about the, the changes of the visual world. And sometimes he could be very funny. He, he did an interview with Terry Gross uh, within the last year or two in which he talked about um, really serious amounts of, of psychotropic drugs he'd taken. In yeah, yeah, and, I know. It's and the amazing. memory he had amazing. of, of the guy. color blue that guy. he'd only seen twice, and one of them was, was during one of these events. And I teach a course on the color blue, and I, I found myself um, uh, Wanting concerned about Ross using that example, yeah, yeah, exactly. saying, kids, do not try this at home. <laughs> uh, but he, you know, he was a remarkable scholar of many things. He was a swimmer. He was a, a polymath. I mean, he, he, he wrote, he looked, he read. He, people loved him. Um, he was kind of an iconoclast, too, though. I mean, he was—he was kind of a late bloomer, self-described late bloomer, um, and he—you know—he grew up with with I think very taciturn, difficult parents, both of whom were physicians themselves. Came to the United States in the '60s, and I think it took him a while to find his way. But my God, what a prolific body of work he left behind! Yeah, and just so wide ranging. And it's so funny you mentioned kind of like his writing about seeing and perception because the piece that he wrote that I've never forgotten, and I would say I think of it. Like maybe as often as once a week was a piece that he wrote back in the early 90s that ran in the New Yorker, and it's called, um, if you want to look it up, it's called To See and Not See. Do you remember this? He's writing about a patient who had been blind since childhood and who, um, you know, well advanced in age, like around 50, has his sight restored. And it it there's something so fascinating about challenging the idea particularly you know to someone like 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 me or you as a design as designers that um that there are so many different ways to perceive the world other than seeing because what was discovered of course you know this is meant to be like a happy story this guy hasn't been you know has lived for five decades without being able to see anything and now suddenly he's had his sight restored and it's just supposed to be isn't this just great i never imagined it would be so wonderful and what's really interesting in his account of it is that um this guy was very very capable and active um uh, person, although he was blind, you know, he had, he got around, he enjoyed things. He loved listening to baseball games on the radio, was a real fan, you know, and sort of lived a full and interesting life, had his sight restored and actually found it difficult to reconcile 
this new body of information with his way of navigating the world. There's an account of like you know his bafflement about uh, the way. Um, you know the fact that a dog looks different from looks can look different whether he's facing you and you really can't see his back legs or he turns sideways and you see all four legs at once. You know, like you know, dog. If you're touching a dog, it always feels exactly the same way. You know, the right. idea, if you look at it, it's farther away, it looks smaller, it comes closer, it's bigger. These things we take for granted about the way we perceive the world. You know, to sort of read how foreign they are and how remarkable they are and how potentially disorienting they are. Um, and that's the, exactly it. That, that, yeah. The story was amazing. I remember it. And, and we'll, 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 there's a copy online. We'll put a link to it on our site. It, he, you know, there was no context. He thought the moon was bigger than it was. He thought you know, yeah. the, a plane was a blimp. And, and you, know, you realize how everything in life is contextual. Psychology is contextual. Design is certainly contextual. And, and you know, what a handicap it is to have that kind of sudden new freedom. I think you know, his body of work, which he has left behind is really, really an important contribution, I think, to, you know, uh, world literature. And I would say to anyone's design library, if they have an uh, open enough mind to kind I of... I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. It. And I think, I think one thing I would just add to that is, in, in, in the context of our conversation uh, this evening about, you know, posturing behind language that might not exactly characterize the work you're doing, this was a man who was so dear in his honesty, so... Um, precise, with, so, so precise, precise as, as scientists can be, but also just not a pretension in the world. And even at the end, when he knew his time was narrowing to a close, he wrote several things this summer that were published in the New York Times that were so poignant and so generous of spirit with regard to his family, with regard to friends, with regard to things he knew he would not live to see. And it's yeah. that, I mean, talk about dying with dignity. The man had such enormous grace, and that is a lesson all of us really must take to heart. It's re- he was a remarkable person. Indeed. I, no, I, I, I second that uh, wholeheartedly. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com, and there you can find links to the things we've been discussing, uh, including the work of Oliver Sacks and some of these exciting logo controversies and uh, uh, what our friends at Harvard Business Review are writing about design thinking. Between episodes, keep up with Design Observer on Facebook and on Twitter and let us know what you thought of the show and if there's something you want to hear us talk about next time. You can subscribe to The Observatory on iTunes, SoundCloud, or however you take your podcasts. Go to designobserver.com slash the observatory. That's designobserver.com slash the observatory. And if you're not listening already, please tune into our other podcast, Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Thanks to the Designers and Books Fair for sponsoring this episode of The Observatory. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music. Our producer is Blake Eskin. Talk to you soon, Michael. Thanks, Jessica. Talk to you soon. 